0: Roundtable, your premier source for D&D news.
1: We cover everything D&D from Wizards of the Coast. We cover updates from the convention circuit. We cover new and exciting products, cast and streams, and events for D&D. We cover happenings in organized play.
0: If it's D&D related, we cover it here.
2: a lot of subscription services out there that deliver things right to your door these days. Veggies, movies, meat, pet toys, artisanal jams, collectibles, RPGs, pictures of cool places, music, butter, dice. Wait, what? There is literally only one thing on that list that would make my life complete. A monthly subscription service for dice? Dice envy has subscription services for dice they send you a unique set every single month right to your house go check out their subscriptions or if you just want to go buy some of their unique and interesting dice head over to diceenvy.com and let them know that the tome show sent you support for the tome show comes from noble knight from noble knight noble knight knight Night?
3: Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight
0: to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. Noblenight.com. The brick and mortar online store where out of print is available again. Tell them the tome show sent you. I use noble knight. You do? I love it. Welcome to the D&D Roundtable. Tonight, we're talking to Keith Baker and Rudy Rutenberg. While both of these folks have had a significant effect on the hobby of Dungeons & Dragons, tonight we want to narrow that focus down and talk to them about Eberron. I'm sure you already know that Keith Baker was the original author for Eberron in 3.5 and the one who captained that uh, airship as it sailed out and created a whole dynasty of products and games and fun times. Rudy Rutenberg, as I'm sure you know, is intricately involved in all things 5th edition and is one of the lead designers for the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, the newest 5th edition Eberron product. So tonight, we're gonna start with our get to know you question. And tonight, our get to know you question is, which was your favorite 3.5 Eberron adventure and why? Who wants to go first?
2: uh, I'll jump it. uh It's a difficult thing because um, I, of course, generally don't run other people's adventures uh, because I'm always making up my own stuff. So there's a number that I just haven't personally read. Like, I know, I think it's Chimes at Midnight. Uh, I hear a lot of good things about, which was Nick Logue, I believe, but I haven't actually read it myself. Shadows of the Last War uh, was one of my early adventures, but it got tweaked in a few ways in editing that frankly uh, bugged me. So I won't go with that. So I would actually say uh, when I was traveling around the world, I ran an adventure that I set in Greywall uh, that was a group of monsters... Uh, trying to track down uh, a wizard before he could swap bodies. And uh, I ran that game 56 times. And unfortunately, it's not out in any form anyone else could see. 56?
0: Like the number between 55 and 57.
2: That is correct. And uh, it's flexible enough that it's different every time. And so I would say that's my favorite because you got to like something to run it 56 times.
1: Oh, man, that's getting up on there to Alan Patrick levels of how many times he's run his author only. He topped 100. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Woo, boy.
3: But I think that was all ego on Alan's point. I don't think that had anything to do with it, you know, being his own setting and stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it was just his desire to continue to um, kill and terrify uh, player characters. But, yeah, no, that's uh, very impressive, though. Um, You know, I'm kind of sad that I didn't get to play on any of those 56 iterations of it (laughs) Um,
2: I I may start running it again I'm just saying I love that adventure
1: oh man I I will follow you around to a convention somewhere then we're gonna make it (laughs) happen (laughs) Rudy what about you then
3: so I I may actually be one of the other few people who have run that adventure uh, for celebrity charity 20 With uh, not only that one, but I had two other ones that I got to run along those same lines. One was called Dolores Dawn, which was Mm -hmm. also written by some dude named Keith Baker. Mm -hmm. And um, I do recall, I don't remember which one it was, but I do know that for that Celebrity Charity D&D or uh, Celebrity Charity 20, whichever way it's being called at, at any given moment, is two of those adventures were not updated for fifth edition and i had to do them on the fly because we didn't really Mm -hmm. have a whole lot of prep Mm -hmm. time but the thing that i really liked about dolier's dawn was that it was essentially a reality show using a (laughs) scrying crystal (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. and uh it was a lot of fun
1: yeah that sounds super exciting
3: that actually reminds me, Keith, we should probably just go ahead and update those uh, all for 5th edition. Like, I should just do an edit pass on those, and we can put them out.
2: Yeah, absolutely, since they're already, you know, something that we've put up with uh, HRG20. You know, I think that's a great idea.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'll get to working on that after the other project that we have going on.
2: Yeah, we do have, have a good month of work ahead of us, but it's going to be pretty exciting when it's done.
0: Can you tell us more about this project you're working on?
2: Uh, so we're working on a book called uh, Morgrave's Miscellany*, and mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of a follow-up to the Wayfinder's Guide. In you know, the thing about the Wayfinder's Guide is it sort of hits the things that you need to have uh, to play in Eberron. So the core races, dragon marks, right. Uh, right. But among other things, we didn't want to go too overboard. Uh, with things that are sort of interesting parts of the setting but are adding more complexity. Uh, so, you know, just a, you know, one critical example that comes up is Sybaris dragon marks, um, which are sort of a very classic part of the setting, but again, it's just one more layer of dragon mark. Um, and so the Margrave's miscellany is essentially adding more character options and a little more sort of things that let you um bring the lore to life as it were and so sort of core concepts the extreme mm-hmm. explorer the cataclysm mage the right. you know these are all things that have been part of the setting but like we said we're just a little too much detail to go into in the wayfinder's guide and so rudy and i have, have delved into those into a little more depth Also, given that the Wayfinder's Guide is very much sort of trying out different concepts, uh, we're also exploring a different approach to dragon marks that let you uh, develop dragon marks after first level, since the Wayfinder's version makes it part of character race and therefore sort of ties it to character generation. So it's it's this combination of new character options and different approaches to things just to sort of round out the Wayfinder's Guide.
3: One of the things that I really liked about the way that we approached Dragon Marks in the Wayfinder's Guide is we were sitting there and we were like, we'd already done a pass on them as feats because that was the standard from before, but also before... Right, that was the
0: 3.5 version, right? Exactly. Right,
3: and feats were essentially just like given out almost at will. They were just as available... Uh, as a cantrip would be these days, in 3.5. So we were like, well, if we do that under 5th edition, then we're simply saying only humans can manifest them. And while that maybe is kind of okay, in a sense, because humans uh, are the largest majority of dragonmarked races, then we're kind of also telling halflings and... Uh, gnomes that they have to wait like they already have to be down their adventure line which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because in Eberron characters are super important and special and most people never make it to fourth level so it doesn't theoretically or uh, even really thematically feel appropriate to say that every halfling in Galanda is already a fourth level character by the time that they settle down and and get an end somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So by rejiggering the... Oh, I guess like there was also a little thing there, too, where like some of the races in Faerun, uh, their statistics don't really match how the races work in Eberron. So it, it gave us an opportunity to say, well, your dwarf that is House Kundarak. It doesn't have to be the plus two plus two or a plus two plus one for strength and constitution. Right. They can actually be, they can have these other attributes that actually more reflect the way that the dwarves of Eberron uh, settle. So then on the other side of that, we didn't want there to be like, well, if you didn't start with that, you can never have one because that messes up some story ideas and arcs about the people who manifest them uh, late, in, late in life those random, very seldom occurrences. So that's, we kind of mm-hmm. wanted to go back and, and have another option down the road and test that out after we took care of the Wayfinder's Guide.
2: Yeah, I really like in 5th um, edition, one of the things I like is the way that background can help you tell a story. And right, so I right. really like the way that having a dragon mark at first level is, uh, being able to blend that with your background. So one of the things we call out in the Wayfinder's Guide, if I'm in Galanda and I'm a noble, then I'm probably tied to one of the, the ruling families of the house. If I'm in Galanda and I'm a guild artisan, then okay, I, I work at a bar. If I'm in Galanda and I'm an urchin or a criminal, then okay, maybe I'm a foundling or maybe I was driven out of the house. And so that, that intersection of those two really let you sort of build an interesting story ahead of time without doing anything like you know other things we consider do you give characters extra feats or things like that
0: right um so I an extra really, feat can be terribly unbalanced
2: it, it changes things dramatically and we just didn't really want to go there um and so so i really like what we ended up with with this way you can blend background and race but as Rudy said you know it does also end up with but what if you really want that character uh, who unexpectedly suddenly discovers, oh, they have a blood tie to the house, and that changes things. And so, again, this is all about sort of exploring different approaches uh, and, and seeing how they work.
0: Do you guys have a, um, a launch date for this product?
2: We are currently saying
3: probably early to mid-September. I have a lot of artwork that's being done specifically for it, so we wanted to make sure that not only did we have that and we weren't rushing the artists because there will be a bunch of new original artwork, but we wanted to make sure that we took the time to really give the options for the player but also for Keith to generate the uh, lore that would support those options. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think you might have said that we're probably looking at having around the bubble of two, um, two player character options, whether it's a background or a feat or uh, an archetype for each one of the current archetypes uh, or current classes, because Mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that there um, there was something there for everybody, but also that Keith could explain how certain, like, maybe cleric domains would be used in right. Eberron. How so, different barbarians would work in, in that sense.
2: Yeah, so that's sort of the point to me is to to blend these two things of, on the one hand, uh, taking something like barbarians and sort of saying, how do the existing archetypes fit into Eberron? You know, how do... Uh, what is a barbarian in Eberron? Uh, and then, at the same time, Adding new options, archetypes, backgrounds, feats that capture the things that aren't really at this oh,
0: point. So we well might get a, a halfling dinosaur barbarian, huh? Might. Hope. At the very least, we'll talk about it. All right. You know, and
2: how we'd reflect it. Dinosaur <laughs>
3: barbarian. Okay, that's written down.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, add that one to your notes.
0: Never to be seen again. <laughs> so. <laughs> So one of the fun things about, one of the very many fun things about uh, Eberron coming out in 5th edition is that, well, I mean, obviously 5th edition has been purpose-built to, desi- to be easy for people to learn. And so we've got a whole lot of new players playing 5th edition that either have never played D&D before or, you know, the last edition they played is second, so not really a whole lot has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, but th- these people don't know anything about Eberron. If you could tell a new player one thing about Eberron, what, what would you want to tell that new player?
2: Well, I want to hear what Rudy has first, because, of course, I already have. Uh, I'm coming from the, the having lived with it for so much longer. So mm-hmm. uh, Rudy has had to introduce it to, to new people more recently than I. So what do you think?
0: Um, one, one thing, the most important thing,
3: Hmm. I think that the gravity of the setting is really what is important to kind of relay to players. Because in Faerun, we have like the players have other people that can come and clean up their messes. There's always Elminster floating around doing whatever it is that he does, going to get a root beer. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of uh, gods that'll come and hang out and do whatever. But really, there's a moral and ethical conundrum that you can place for the players in Eberron where you say, look, the world won't revolve around you, but you are going to be a rather important figure assuming you don't die. Mm-hmm. So like, act accordingly. Understand that there are no, there's nobody to do this, so whatever you do will affect the world moving forward and uh, really sell that feeling that the, the gods aren't coming to your aid. And likewise, you're still probably pondering whether or not they're there. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to kind of make up your own mind about what is the moral and ethical lines that you as a group or as an individual uh, will walk. I know I have something actually uh, planned out that I usually say, but uh, <laughs> that for some reason cost me, caught me a little
2: off guard. Oh, no worries. Uh, I, you know, to me, that is, again, one of the things that is very different, you know, is that sort of point that this is a world where good and evil are less iconically defined because you don't have, you know, incarnate gods, you uh, sort of there to sort things out and i definitely agree you know it is a a place where if something terrible is happening there may just be no one else out there who can solve the problem um for me it, it is hard to say what is the one thing because that was really what we did with the first chapter of the wayfinder's guide was basically say well here's i think it is Ended up being eight things. You know, these are the core principles. Uh, you know, right? Swashbuckling adventure, uh, noir intrigue. Uh, you know, a world of magic, and uh-huh. that's part of the problem to me. Of of like, well, one of the things I definitely come to is the the wide magic, not high magic. Uh, where we want to say this is a world where magic is part of the world, but it's incorporated in a so to speak realistic way. Um, and sort of understanding that but again that's about sort of day-to-day but i would say it's not as critical to the flavor as some of what rooney was saying
3: so here's i I do remember what i usually say and uh that also comes along the lines of the same thing with the the low wide magic and it has kind of like a high focus consequent rate and that's because Mm -hmm. like the i think it I forgot about, like, just being focused on everyone because it's actually just my style of DMing Mm -hmm. entirely. So Mm -hmm. what I say when I have a player that's new, that's new, sit down with me. I say, okay, so a world with no consequence is of no consequence. Mm -hmm. So everything that's within this game or this table or this campaign is going to matter. And the consequences that you, like, the things you do will matter so, know that this is how everything will work. And then follow that with the uh, low, wide magic and what mm-hmm. that actually mm-hmm. means. Because I think a lot of people think Everon means high magic because we have all of these exactly. things. but Really, people don't have that. You, the best you get is you get a guy that can go and light street lamps or something, you know? Right.
2: When well, we were, one um, of the things I find really. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things I find really funny on that point in particular is especially airships, is people get the concept of airships and thus assume that, oh, it's it's crazy over-the-top wide magic. And one of the things that's interesting is airships are actually very recent development in uh, default Eberron. They've only been around for eight years. And what airships sort of reflect is that magic is something that evolves, something that, and that airships are sort of a new transformative element, the way that when air travel started to become a thing in our world, it changed things up. Now, that's not like a big thing, but I'm just saying it is sort of a point of everyone's not a world where airships are just a casual, they've been around forever. It's a world in which we're innovating, we're discovering new things, and airships are one of those.
3: Right, and they're expensive, and they're hard to get a yeah. hold of because it takes two different Dragonmark houses to come together and agree to do it. <clears throat> um, can I actually ask you, Keith? Because I haven't mm-hmm. thought about this before. Um, with airships being eight years old, and um, Warforge being six years old at most, from what I recall, no.
2: actually Warforge thirty.
3: Thirty. Yes. Interesting. OK, so that's good to know. How long have we had uh, lightning rails? Because I had not thought about the time frame. Uh, I assume they were also a very recent development.
2: No, I think the lightning rail is about one hundred and ten years old. The train came I think it the was plane. eight. Exactly right. And so that's the point that the lightning rail, the whole idea is this is the more established form of transportation. Uh, whereas the airship is, of course, new, and once they have a big enough fleet, you know, it does kind of, uh, you know, it can do things that the, the, you know, it's not as limited as the lightning rail. On the other hand, this is the point of saying there's still a lot of cities that don't have docking towers or don't have facilities, so there's still places you can only get to with the lightning rail.
3: That's good. So, All right, now, so now that's something that people who are listening to this will have uh, be like, oh, 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 okay, cool. And they're probably writing it down right now. Really, <laughs> we haven't really broached that as a, a timeline thing as far no, as
2: well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing is it's there uh, like in the core timeline in the, the original books, but we don't call it out often. And so it's not really something there's a lot of little details like that. and And this is part of to me, it's interesting of once you start saying treat magic like a science, to actually think about that means there are new developments that change things, that it is, again, constantly evolving. And part of our point is that the last war drove a lot of innovation. And it's more interesting to say that, again, something is fairly new than this is just how we've been doing things for a thousand years. But that is a piece that, again, even in the core books really isn't called out in a lot, you know, as much detail as it might be.
3: And you said Warforger 30 years old? Because I, I, I feel like we're going to have to have a chat about that, that offline off because I'm curious uh, with some of now the other things that, that are sparking back up in my mind and being mm-hmm. like, wait, I I feel like I feel like this is when if like if they hadn't had it by then why would this storyline make sense now and the so we'll talk about that. that's this is one of the cool things guys that I get to do <laughs> on a regular basis with Keith is I'm just like but what about this?
2: <laughs> because he's got Hashtag everything back
3: there Johnny. in his head. No. He's, well, he's got everything back there in his head and it, it's a. Uh, and I love the setting. Like it's it's totally the D&D setting that works best for the way that I like to envision fantasy. So To me, uh, there's really – Keith could probably sit and talk. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, I know this is true. Keith and I have actually spent like five, six days together at any given time and just talked the entire time about Eberron, history, the philosophy, etc., etc.
2: Yeah. And looking to to the Warforge, you know, part of the point there is, again, the same thing. Warforge first went into service 30 years ago, but that's the thing is that they didn't spring out, suddenly fully formed, completely perfected. And so a 30-year-old Warforge is a very old sort of, uh, you know, likely limited model in some way. And so the whole idea of things like, as we introduced in the Wayfinder's Guide, the Envoy... Uh, the idea of the envoy is to say this is essentially a new model, you know, where yeah. they're learning to do. They're saying, what can we do with Warforged beyond just make a thing that can fight? And so over the last couple of decades, they've been refining them. They've been improving them. And so to me, again, it, it's we sort of throw in if you check the old books that, again, the oldest a Warforged can be is 30 years old. To me, a 30-year-old Warforged is this wow you you know you're you're the old you know warhorse as it were you know you've been out there in the field for decades uh and you're probably again a relatively primitive design in comparison uh to a warforge made 2 years ago
3: yeah i'm thinking a lot about lay and about uh other mm-hmm. scenarios there where i'm like some of the most advanced anyway yeah, um, yeah.
0: that's
1: very but, one of you know, the west world there yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Very. One of the things that came up in our prior discussion of Eberron with some uh, some Eberron fans was that uh, the one thing that, at least I think people should go into Eberron with knowing, mm-hmm. is kill your tropes. Just kill them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Every, Fair enough. Every fantasy trope you have in your brain, just take it out back and shoot it, because mm-hmm. Eberron breaks, I
1: I think, about all of
0: the tropes. Like I'm sure there's some it doesn't, but wow, does it break yeah, break that's a lot? Pretty um.
1: much true. There's there's not all these big calamities. There's not evil like you. the The alignment is not quite as black and white as it is in Faerun, and it, it, it's it's. Uh,
2: one of one of the other going back to our various little one-liners. One of the ones I always like to to drop out there is that. Uh, the bad guys aren't always monsters, and the monsters aren't always bad guys. Yes. And,
3: oh, and I don't fun. play alignment in general, so I always forget about that, too, Or I'm just like, there's no yep. such thing. We don't... <laughs> that doesn't work in Eberron.
2: I, I do have to say, I often do not bother uh, having players set in alignment. You know, when I'm making pregens, I usually don't stick it on there because I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really... <laughs> you know, it's not really a thing. Yeah, but there you go.
1: So, I mean, that's kind of... Part of what makes it a very unique setting. Um, so, I mean, we've got all this cool stuff though. So, what are we kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can go on for days about this, but most looking forward to these people who've never played with Eberron before, we've never experienced, most looking forward to getting out there in front of them and, you know, having them ooh and ah over the, the features or the classes or whatever it is.
3: Are you speaking about the Wayfinders guide, or are you speaking about the thing that we're working on?
1: um, Well, I'm talking Eberron in in general, but we could narrow it down to the Wayfinders guide, because that's where most people are going to start, especially the people who aren't familiar with Eberron at all. I know, personally, I've been poring over it diligently.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think you've had to recently.
1: Yes. Um
2: I mean, to me, it's it's sort of, you know, the whole thing. Again, the Wayfinder's Guide, the whole point was to say these are the sort of crucial elements of the setting, both mechanically and in story. Uh, to me, I'm very happy with that first chapter in, in the way it hits sort of critical themes like the war, pulp adventure, war intrigue, and you know throughout it we're trying to say and here's a couple of practical ways that you can actually incorporate this theme you know here's an idea but you know here's the why does your character need 200 gold pieces table um and that there's there's ways for people to just sort of match on to things uh, beyond that again all the mechanical elements you know i i again love the war forge they're a very tricky thing to balance and we're still working on that but you know uh i'm playing a warforged envoy in a game right now that we just just started up and i'm very much enjoying it uh the dragon marks to me are both interesting from a sheer mechanical standpoint but also it's back to that whole point of saying we're introducing a concept and then saying and what is the consequence in the world that with the dragon marks the ability that you possess is one thing but then exploring the power of the houses is another thing that is just there's a lot of interesting stories you can uh, develop
0: from that
3: Mm -hmm. and i think that one of the other things that's really cool about the setting and, and it again feeds a lot into the style that i i like to play is the idea that um you you are playing in a noir style scenario which means that everybody is ultimately a sinner seeking redemption now, whether or not that's a biblical type of sin, or whether or not that's a, you know, the ethical sins, or or uh, whatever line that you're walking, but essentially, everybody, especially because of the last war, have done things they're not proud of, and I, when when I sit down at the table, I don't even let players tell me about like their ideals and all of whatever other stuff because I believe that stuff will come out during game. What I do ask for is for people to tell me what their flaws are, mm-hmm. and Keith. Uh, not only flaws, but what are your flaws? What are your vices? What are the things mm-hmm. that you literally cannot walk by without having a, a twitch or or without really jumping on? And then what is your greatest sin? What is the worst? Sin? What's the thing that you regret the most, which Keith actually put into the Wayfinder's Guide with the Regrets Table, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there's only 10 there, but how many regrets do we have on a daily basis? So, and,
2: and And to me, tying to that in particular, that's the point there are only 10 there and to me with all those tables whether it's the regrets whether it's what you did in the war whether it's the the debt uh, table to me i don't really see those as things that i expect every player to sit down and roll to me it's you can do that but really it was just here's ideas here's things to start you thinking and and again I very much do exactly what Rudy's saying is just talk to people and say, you tell me your story. And if you just can't think of something, fine, roll a die. But really, it's all about just giving people ideas to work with.
3: Yeah. And when they sit down at, at the table when I start with them and I'm, I'm doing those things, what I'm doing is also weaving their different regrets or sins into where they all have that sort of like one or two degree separation where they didn't realize that one of the things they did actually affected somebody else at the table with them in a certain way. So that they it like it helps to kind of build that idea of consequence in there a little bit more.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely love all the tables that we've got going on. <laughs> and they definitely give you some good ideas and there's got a lot of opportunities for good Role play in Eberron—that's one of the things that I'm loving about it so far. Um, well, Rudy, you keep talking about uh, you know games you've been playing in Eberron, and Keith, you do too. But um, your your show uh, that you do is set in Eberron, is it not?
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd probably like to say that I'm the longest running playtest for Eberron Fifth Edition <laughs> because we've been playing it a Maze Arcana for a little over two years now. Uh, I think so. When I started to do the updates for it, I think it was a little before I had already, uh, a little bit before I, no, actually, I guess I already had met you. Yeah, um, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so actually, I had already met Keith. We had probably, I probably did a bunch of updates for Celebrity Charity 20 and then, uh, would go back and forth with Keith about like, okay, does this fit what you're thinking? And is this, how does this feel with that? And so when we started to do wayfinders guide, it was obviously a very easy transition because we had already been sort of working that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, yeah, before, you know what, we had a much grander kind of campaign setting going on where I was trying to hit a lot of the things about, Eberron in certain ways, and then I had players, a couple of players, who were a little murder hobo-y, and <laughs> I was like, well, you can't be inside a town, so now I have to take you out into the countryside and actually go through a lot of this stuff out there, um, and then with the new episodes that we have going on, uh, what we're doing, calling it uh, Inkwell Society, whereas we we used to have Orphan Echo, and that was a little bit more, uh, a little more outlandish. This one is the complete opposite. It really focuses down on the nitty gritty portions of, uh, Eberron where everybody's like, everybody's really struggling to kind of lift themselves up. And they're, they're really down there in the underbelly of Sharn. And it really feels a lot more like a post-war, uh, not, not like everybody's like miserable, but that everybody has a, uh, has those things that they really just have to get over in order to start making their way again in the world
1: it's kind of like the weight of all of the events that have happened just mm-hmm. resting on their
0: shoulders yep right and, and, and any any pc or npc you look at you have to look at your barkeep or mm-hmm. you know the cute gnome selling potions mm-hmm. or the kind of disgruntled guy that you know runs the the i sell hand axes stand or whatever mm-hmm. and you have to think what were they doing in the last war like, Yeah. Like, how does that affect their life because anybody who's fought in a war as we know Mm -hmm. now any veteran uh is generally greatly changed uh at least their outlook is by uh by having that experience like maybe you're you know you're kind of flirting with the 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 handsome barkeep but maybe he was crawling through trenches cutting throats and in the last Mm -hmm. war it's neat because everybody's got that secret story
1: oh yeah definitely the, the the history of everyone and, and the effect on the city and Sharn in particular is, is such an interesting uh, location. I've kind of really dug into the lore of that city. It's quickly becoming one of my, my favorite uh, settings. And,
2: yeah, and that's, that's to me with the Wayfinder's Guide again. And that's the point is very much with Wayfinder's Guide, we didn't want it to just repeat what had already been done. So the Sharn's City of Towers sourcebook, which is uh, on the DMs Guild, is a great sourcebook that really goes into a lot of depth on the city. Mm-hmm. And so with the Wayfinder's Guide, we really wanted to get more into the feel of it, what brings people there, uh, and what kind of stories you can tell there. And so we have you know, all the tables of just sort of ideas for, okay, you're an acolyte in Sharn, what does that mean? Uh, but also we do have the, the couple of different starting points, which really touch on exactly what Rudy was just talking about. If you have Clifftop, which is much more the sort of Orphan Echo, this is a home base for people who are traveling, you know, adventures were uh, adventurers who are gonna be traveling around uh, the world on grander scale. Uh and then again, Lower Dura and Kalistan are more about that sort of gritty uh you know uh noir stories, yeah you know, much more in the inkwell flavor. Yeah. sean's and, Welcome
3: is mm-hmm. one of the the bubbles that we're floating about in now, uh and Gold uh, Gate Gold,
2: Gates of mm-hmm. Gold or Gold Gate, mm-hmm. I forget what it yep. is but... I think gates of gold, but it's tough because it might be gold gate. Because yeah, they both sound right. I think it's gates of gold. It is gate of gold. There you go. Mm -hmm.
1: So many adventures with such similar names. I run into this all the time now. These are districts,
3: (laughs) right? So these aren't even like adventures. These are literally districts inside. Sharn's Welcome is uh, that far left portion over there, where it's it's kind of like right where the docks would would start. It overlooks the water, but it's also the slums and it's on the lower portion of it. So you have, uh, if you look early in the Wayfinder's guide, they've got this really cool, uh, view where you're looking out over, uh, kind of where there's an airship dock and they've got these, uh, these pulley systems moving stuff up and down and you can see off in the distance, little ways further. There's kind of like the dagger river and stuff. And if you think about that as being pretty high up like maybe mid-Dura area we're below that so Mm -hmm. it's like the where do all the fish guts go down to (laughs)
2: um yeah
1: I yeah I've definitely been reading the old old source books and stuff digging into Sharn
0: um the Sharn book was my favorite ever source book I thought it was very cool
2: yeah. I do think it's one of the best source books uh, you know, for the setting just because I really think it covers so many aspects uh, of the city. And so so definitely, again, as I said, I'm very proud of what we did with Wayfinders because I do think we managed to do something different than, uh, than the strong mm-hmm. source books does. So they do
1: no, complement
2: each other rather than be redundant.
1: Definitely has a lot of... Mm-hmm. N- n- not necessarily new, but um, packaged differently. Some of it's new. I mean, it's all fifth edition stuff, so new in mm-hmm. that aspect. But uh, they go very well together. And, w- well, I mean, speaking, because I've I had my, my, my nose completely buried in them because I'm working on <laughs> my upcoming uh, Everon for the um, the AL campaign that's starting in September, which oh, actually great. will kind of coincide with um, approximately when you guys are saying your new book will be out. So that worked out really well. Yeah,
3: actually, it's funny because we're both guild adepts, right? And uh, I am, I'm doing the source stuff, and I don't actually have time to write adventures for it mm-hmm. because of that, uh, which is sl- slightly a bummer for me because I want to do one of the AL adventures, but at the same time, I can't. I just I have to do this. Uh, not only this, clearly, because it's not like a. I mean, it's kind of yeah. a dream come true to get to do this, but beyond that, like the other things, running the production studio, having the show. And kind of all the other things that are entailed with that suck up the rest of my time to where I don't actually get the um, the wow. luxury of running mm-hmm. of making an AL game. We're
1: all very understanding and very grateful for your work. It's made it easier for us to do our job.
2: <laughs> well, I'm very excited to see uh, to see everything that comes out with the AL. So yeah. I'm looking. Forward so
0: to it. so let's let's talk about that. So. So, just... what are what are your thoughts about the upcoming AL campaign? Like, what do you want to see out of it? What do you hope to accomplish?
2: Uh, did you have something ready?
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, don't like I'm trying my best
3: to monitor the Slack and to make sure that uh, the adventures don't feel like Faerun as best mm-hmm. I can. Mm-hmm. But like, I really have not had the opportunity to do like some of the things that I've popped in with. Uh, for instance, right, we we created the stuff for the level zero uh, campaign portion, which is you know for Inkwell Society. Part of that feeling low and gritty is that this is uh, this is the stuff that makes level zero hard. So we're going to go through, and this these are our mechanics for running level zero, and this is how campaigns balance well with that, et cetera, et cetera. And I just happened to find out that somebody in AL was going to do a level zero thing, but they were using completely different rules for mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had to pop in and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, okay, so mm-hmm. this is not actually what we're putting out for that. And, da, 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 and it became kind of a thing uh, mm-hmm. slightly just because of a... Uh, well, you know, we weren't told about any of this. I was like, yeah, and nobody asked me either. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm right here. You guys have access to me. Why don't you just ping me or send me a text? Wow. Or something? I yeah, given
1: you, you know how collaborative projects are. Nobody thinks about it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, uh, just Keith, like, I-, I did my best to keep things as close to Eberron mm-hmm. as I can. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen because I'm not going to get to read them all or edit them before they go out.
1: Well, they're going no. chugging along mm-hmm. really well, and I feel like from what I've seen so far that they've definitely got that noir feel. I've uh, actually only read Greg's and... Well,
0: and
2: and that's the point to me is I'm, I'm just interested to see which aspects of the people, the world, people do explore, uh, because you know it is intentionally a world that can tell many different stories, and Shine itself very much lends itself to, to, to the sort of darker uh, story and so you know my understanding is there's going to be uh, a certain focus on Sharn which makes sense because that's what we've covered the most mm-hmm. um, and yeah I'm, I'm just always interested in seeing the you know essentially what inspires people and what draws people in so I'm just looking forward to all of it
1: yeah it's, it's centered in Sharn there and it's going to pair really well with the encounters in Sharn that came out alongside Mm -hmm. the Wayfinder's guide. So um super excited um to get this out and to have everyone see it and I I'm just I'm beyond excited to be working on this. I'm honored. (laughs) So so um yeah, I'm I'm really liking what I've got going so far. I don't wanna talk too much about it but
3: <laughs> yeah most of the ideas that I saw coming up there were really uh intriguing or really grabbed onto uh one of the angles I think that was less explored in some of the previous adventure content that was put out, not to say that anything before uh in the earlier editions were was generic, but just that like you know like what you were saying about breaking the tropes, we really wanted to focus on those things that were different from other settings
2: at the no, same time. I've- absolutely and i think that with the initial uh you know the initial adventures that came out in 3.5 in particular you know over the time dungeon magazine gave a lot more room for people to explore things and of course you know i really liked actually speaking of 3.5 adventures you know i liked i did an adventure called the delirium stone uh which is poking around in sharon and you basically get thrown back into the war of the mark uh with the war or between the dragon marked houses and the the aberrants, and that was fun. Um, but I think those earliest adventures, part of the point is the people writing them. You know, even myself with the first one, uh, hadn't yet really come to understand the things that really define Eberron and make it unique. And so these are things that now we do understand. Sort of the the most interesting aspects of the world and uh so people are i hope exploring those in more you know sort of digging a little deeper into that
3: right i think uh, one of the cool things and hopefully we can guide it as it continues through its al process is that once you start getting into those higher tiers three and four you're really looking at very lovecraftian type uh advancing of character level because now you're doing things that affect like not just the world, but all of the additional planes or moons that are adjacent to it. And there's a lot of history that Keith wrote out that is, like he said, you know, he there was the stone and you th- got thrown back. Well, there's mm-hmm. an entire mm-hmm. feeling here of, uh, or an entire plethora of, oh, this is another time travel one where we actually mm-hmm. get to go back, you know? And in writing, uh, whenever you're writing like actual narrative, one of the things you really want to try and stay away from a lot is... Time travel because it gets to be a pain in the butt. You have to like worry about butterfly effect stuff, etc. Mm-hmm. But when you have those opportunities for this to essentially make sure that the setting stays the same when you come back from wherever you go, that's a good way to incorporate where they would need a higher level person that maybe somebody thought was like a deity mm-hmm. or a magical being from another plane because technically they are, they just sidestepped that. You know, mm-hmm. they they came over from what's present day on there and just happened to jump into the dimension uh, parallel to that where they were way back, you know, 10,000 years prior or something.
2: Yeah, it's certainly true. If you want to explore some very high... Uh high level Eberron, you know, just jump back into the middle of the war between the giants and the dragons, or something like yes. that. Or, you know, again, giants and demons, which uh, that's so far back that, yep. you know, you can end up inspiring the stories of the Sovereigns. Exactly.
3: So then all of a sudden now you're the person who they're, like your little party makes up the Dark Six, right?
2: <laughs> How awesome
3: would that be for a Table to experience? <laughs> um, that would be one of the things that Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really like about the setting that I know that at least in this iteration of uh, AL, which I kind of wish we were playtesting it like this, but I know that we we can't just because we would need to have more coordination on it. But I really love the idea of the way the economy is supposed to work with the idea that most people never have a goal or see like a gold piece uh, at one place at in one time, most of the money is uh, a couple of copper for for living day to day. Like all of the things that the the PHB kind of promised to you about, like oh, you know, this is how much money you actually have, and like this is what day rates are like, and this is what it costs to get ale. Like starts to make a lot more sense when you look at it through the goggles of what Eberron proposes. The the amount of money. Uh, or the rarity of what a magic item is now suddenly makes sense that it's a few hundred gold pieces, you know, or thirty platinum because that's not just something you pick up on one adventure, which is prone to happen in Faerun, where it's like, oh, gold yeah. raining down from the sky, it must be Tuesday.
2: Like, well, well, it is interesting. Someone, you know, this just came up on Twitter where someone was asking about the how easily you could buy magic items in Eberron, and you know, this is covered in the Wayfinder's Guide, but essentially it's. It is the rarity categories described from the very beginning. A common item is common. An uncommon item, well, you could find it, but it's it's not uh, as there. And then when you get into a legendary item, is legendary. You know that again. This is back to that whole. Some people worry that this means an Eberron, oh, magic isn't really mysterious. And I'm like, oh no, it is at higher levels. You know, we understand the basic concepts, and that means that, again, uh, that's what makes legendary items and artifacts and high-level magic that much more mysterious and impressive is because we understand how magic works, and we can't do that. Right. So and, okay, I, no, no, no,
3: so no. I was just going to say, the, the thing that always gets me is that I feel like we feed into... The idea of murder hoboing and like the the Zelda going around smashing everybody's pots <laughs> and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, smashing your like using your sword to cut their lawn and stuff like that. Because everybody's trying to look for that, that extra couple gold pieces or trying to right. find that magic item that for some reason is in the baker's uh, flower bag.
0: <laughs> now, and to, there. to be fair... Like, we've all played Tomb of Horrors and remember Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. invisible diamond that was worth several thousand gold pieces (laughs) scampering around and getting lost. Like, everybody still got damage from that. Yeah, so...
3: Mm-hmm. what the so what I was just trying to, to get across with that is that like I feel like if we take the approach that everon has kind of like thematically to it we can actually start to curve that a little bit more so if a DM is having uh, maybe a, a little bit of, of issue with players who are pushing the boundaries just to get what they want and are playing more of a an evil character whether or not they they uh, identify as that or not like if they're playing a more selfish centered self-centered type of character one way you can curb that is by making those things really important and impressive because they're rare you're actually Mm -hmm, following mm -hmm. the rarity charts and stuff like that which is what i try to subscribe to in these things and i can understand how for some people like oh it's it's no fun if i can't get a plus two magic armor Mm -hmm. great that's your game i'm excited Mm -hmm. for you to go and play wow some more uh, in the meantime, right, we're going right. to role-play over here.
0: And that's I, that's been part of the damage with the um, shift from Season, season 7 Ale rules to Season 8 Ale rules, is there's been a continuing thread of, if you're playing this game for Hazeron or whatever other magic item, in if your whole character is centered around just that magic item, <laughs> you're playing a different game than a lot of other people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I, I will say in uh, my home campaign, or one of them, uh, we're running a campaign in Kabara, and it comes exactly back to what Rui was saying about, okay, you know this is a common magic item, but if it's a 100 gold pieces, that's still very significant, uh, where it's basically set in a small mining town, everyone's got a stake in the town, uh, and when we got started, I had everybody tell me something about the local tavern, you know, it's the only inn in town, everyone say something and, and people are each coming up with something. Oh, they brew the finest beer, you know, in their basement and they have these great biscuits. And someone says, well, they don't have a working toilet. And we're all like, oh, why'd <laughs> you ruin our place? Uh, and so I said, well, you know, a cleansing stone is uh, is available. That's, that's what you use for uh, sort of, you know, that's the magical plumbing equivalent and, and that's gonna run you 200 gold pieces. And for the majority of the campaign, the big goal for the group has literally just been raising enough money to buy a toilet for the end. Very nice. Oh, yeah. that's a, and, very important uh,
1: And that I remember. People,
2: well, and I loved that when you there was basically like in the end of the third or fourth session, one of the players is, just sort of remarks that, OK, I know that there's some kind of crazy demonic influence at work, you know, around our town. But I love that we're mainly concerned with with getting that cleansing stone
3: yeah i Uh, really like i really like that when you do things like that and you make magic something that is uh the word like magic items or something like that along along those lines something that is rare it actually increases the excitement that people have when they attain that thing if everybody's running around with Hazeron, then you're like yeah whatever it's like a legendary thing it talks to me it's fine whatever but if you have a if you had that cleansing stone that you guys went through all that effort to do, and then, you know, every time you go to the John, now it's talking
0: Exactly. That's a little bit more intense. <laughs> oh, I, I the John isn't talking to you. That's yeah, all I'm but, saying.
2: Well, see, now I'm now it will be, because I'm adding that in. Oh <laughs> yeah. Just for
3: that
0: that is really what have I doing. done? Uh,
2: but But I agree, you know, it's the difference between uh, the video game, you know, and the 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 tabletop game is, again, that it can be more than just this is a plus one to your stat is that the the story, the challenge or the circumstances of acquiring it are part of what, you know, makes a compelling story. And that's what makes each each game unique. So that's what I love.
3: I think it's fun, too, when you, you like after you start getting all these all these levels and you've got all this hit points and stuff like death is less of an important thing to you. Just like, yeah, whatever. I'm a freaking hero. I don't care. Hit me with the 10 ton hammer. It's fine. I'll walk it off. So like that's even something that I'm playing with for this next round is ways to kind of like actually make death saves something you really don't want to have. Um, and, and that's like inkwell my inkwell players don't know this yet um mm-hmm. and i don't know when this is coming out so maybe i won't divulge the whole thing but essentially death saving throws are going to be drastically altered to the point where they you don't just go unconscious and like hang out and wait for somebody to res you well, i mean sorry to revive you but it's actually going to be a thing that will have lingering effects beyond what we've seen in xge or uh xln or something along those lines
1: Oh, I mean, I kind of definitely feel like now um, I want a a home game where we're just living the day-to-day life in Elmwood, but just the regular Mm villagers.
3: Did you watch the the, uh, Gen Con game that we did for Inkwell by any
2: chance?
0: No, I... I did not. I have been (laughs) full-on busy with Dragon Con stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to be at Dragon Con. Really? That'd be wonderful. You should come by the Adventures League area and say hi. Sign some, Absolutely. sign some books.
2: I'll be happy
0: to. I'll be there running so, my
1: game.
3: One of the things that uh, that we did in that one is it is actually the entire adventure as a one shot is them trying to help somebody move into their building. Oh my <laughs> good, that's kind of. A and one of my players went down twice.
2: I I Moving still love. Hard. Okay. Uh, I, I still love, in, in descriptions of things, uh, your adventure that starts with people jumping out of an airship into the mornland. Oh, yeah. So I'm just like, okay, that's drop right in. You know, let's get that started. And, of course, that's the completely opposite type of game. You know, that's the over-the-top pulp, you know, craziness. Well, but what I love about Eberron is it does both. You know, yeah. both of those are, are, are possible, you know, are things you can explore. It's funny because
3: the, the quote is, if you can find it in D&D, it has a place in Everon, right? But to me, it's actually the reverse of that, where it's like, if you can't find it in D&D, <laughs> you can find it in Everon. Because like, the whole airdrop thing that, that I have going on with that is uh, from my military background, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I'm just going, okay, if they had airships, even if they've only been around for X amount of time, like this would be a thing that they would have uh, easily jumped to, mm-hmm. and the idea of having uh, what I call holodrops, which are uh, high altitude, low activation with your (laughs) your falling stones or your feather stones, is the idea that they're going to use these to get into a place that they shouldn't be in. And it takes a specialized kind of uh, soldier in a way to go do that. And I I love doing it with first level uh, or second level characters. I don't actually think I've done one with a tier two character. Yeah, because when they're f- when they're falling into the Mournland, and they have to do their you know whether they starfish to slow down or they uh, tighten up so that they can hit maximum velocity, uh, they still have to dodge creatures on the way down, and there's like uh, big I called one creatures a and living
0: yeah. spells. <laughs> yes. uh, exactly.
3: So, like, those are Mm, things that you have to dodge on the way down. And and if you're a low-level character, it's really intense because you're not just like, yeah, it's fine, I'll go through it, right? Mm. Plus, you also have to take the timing right so that when you hit the ground from several thousand
0: feet up, you don't just splat right out of the gate.
2: (laughs) I dig it, is all I'm saying.
0: So, Um, I I have a question for you guys. Uh, So, obviously, 3.5 and 5e are very very different creatures. What uh, what elements of the whole Eberron stuff have required the greatest amounts of thought or tinkering or reworking in order to fit into into five E. I think people would be really interested in understanding how you how you design. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, it's it's hard to pick one because uh, pretty much everything in uh, the Wayfinder's Guide, you know, went through that. I mean, the two, you know, two are easy because the two to me would be the Warforged and the Dragonmarks. Yeah. And Warforged again. We're still, you know, in both of those again, we'll see. What we've put out in in the Wayfinder's Guide is a pass. Uh, You know, the races have already gone through UA and already getting feedback and again, The whole point is that we tried a bunch of different approaches on warforged uh you know one of them finally hits the book uh but it is a very tricky thing with the warforged in particular to balance this concept that you are built for a purpose that you are fundamentally different from other characters uh while still maintaining both balance and also flexibility because fifth edition is such a, you know, really strives to give players a lot of choice. And, and those three factors together, we did a lot of back and forth. And like I said, we'll see where it, uh, where it finally ends up uh, trying to, to sort of balance those three things.
3: Yeah, I would say that if you'll notice, this version of Warforged has the sub races to it, which is something that um, I, I think we started talking about, you know, two years ago mm-hmm. with uh, when I started to do updates on my own for the shows. And when we when it came time when we actually got a green light to do this thing, we were like, OK, so this is what my experience in playtesting these has come through. How do you feel about this? And Keith is like, yeah, I'm into it. Let's do that. Similarly, the Kalishtar was another thing that we had talked about doing them, uh, doing a, a couple of sub races too, that we ended up being too busy to go through a full balancing act uh, to do more than we, we did accomplish with them.
0: Yeah, the um, star definitely still needs some tweaking. A little yeah. of
3: tweaking. Yeah. And that's a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have an established form of psionics, right? Because we're like, how do we balance a thing that is meant to thematically have psionics that we can't give psionics to? And we've seen a couple of passes at the way the GIF works and and whatnot. And great, now we have that. But even then, like, we can't just say, oh, take a GIF and call it a different thing. Like, we really actually need to make sure that it's its own balanced. thing. One thing that I would point out, uh, as, and also from the Warforge, we're still looking at, like Keith was saying, some of the different things that have been, uh, the way that it's going. And it's funny because, uh, Keith and I had a laugh the other day that the stuff that people are having the biggest issue with are the things that were changed from when mm-hmm. we ended it in. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but I would say that my favorite thing that we put in that, uh, needed its complete rebalance for fifth edition was the uh the dual-bladed scimitar mm-hmm. which i think i started working on uh like how to figure that out really uh, back in like january
2: and, uh, and we've had, there's at least four or five different versions <laughs> that yeah. we have floating around on the pile
3: yeah uh and um, keith had some great ideas about how well it should be like this and we should make it like this and then we should you know these are the these are the parameters that we need to fit it in and we would always come back to does this suit the way that the story is supposed to be great. Does this actually fill a hole in fifth edition design versus, well, is it just a thing that we can rescan and call it a day, which we don't like to do? We want to design towards the holes, which you'll see in the, the new thing that we're working on is like, oh, these things are things that are iconic to Eberron, but we don't have a parallel for already. In right.
2: Edition. And, and that's the thing, is that in particular with the double scimitar, there wasn't really a precedent for a, a double weapon. And, you know, that's something that existed in 3.5. It was you know sort of very yeah. straightforward, yeah. but it, it hasn't yet uh, existed. Um, I will say one thing that I liked as, uh, you know, 5th edition has sort of supports... The idea of Eberron uh, I do like again The general concept of ritual magic Which you know was also present in 4th But still uh, Rituals fit with the idea Of the mage right as the working Wizard as it were Who mm-hmm. doesn't have the skills mm-hmm. of a player character But who can do magic as a job And when you're Purely restricted to I can cast the spell Once per day uh, It's hard to see how do you do it as a living And so having rituals Helps uh, support that concept of a magic economy. Likewise, the introduction or, you know, sort of really incorporation of cantrips as, as, so to speak, casual, low-level magic really helps with the ideas of things like what we call, you know, the one-slinger uh, in Eberron, you know, with the idea that someone can, you know, I've never liked having firearms incorporated into Eberron, but I like the guy who, you know, has the, uh the wand or the rod and the, that's what they use instead of a bow or a crossbow and again the presence of cantrips of magic initiate of things like that makes that concept of a character uh more plausible than it was in third edition when any wand was a significant magic item
1: okay so man this has been a really good show but we are um getting to the end of our time, so I want to do kind of a section that we've we started up and it's become a great fun. So <laughs> we're just going to brainstorm some plot seeds for people for Eberron, and we actually did this with our other other guests, and I'm going to kind of go back and start us off with one of my favorites that we came up with, which is uh, incorporating the lightning rail into a like a great train heist. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. the, it's it. I mean, it's almost like a classic trope, but you, you've taken it and you you moved it into this whole new setting. And so, uh, you you know, you have your adventurers. Maybe the various houses are competing for whatever valuable treasure we have, or whatnot. And you know, w- do you want to help them or do you want to stop them or? I mean maybe you just wanna sabotage the whole thing or you know who knows there's just so many so many different ways that you could go and like what is it that they're taking why are they taking it like and I don't... It, it came up because we were we were talking about it and of course train
0: job from firefly mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes and, and we realized there is no plot in firefly that won't work magnificently no. in that on
2: Firefly, of course, also one has to throw on that the inherent concept of, uh, you know, I always just call it the the Firefly uh, campaign seed, because the basic concept of a group of Syrian soldiers uh, who escaped the morning, but now basically are people, you know, you lost the war, you lost your homeland, you're all capable people, what do you do now? Right. You know, is uh, is is essentially Firefly. Um, and of course, now with my Kabara campaign, I am also running essentially fantasy western off on the, the fringes. So right. so that fits uh, playing a, a twist on the train story. So train heist again, classic Everon. Uh, one of the stories I've used a bunch of times is kicking things off is is a, uh, grabbing our other mode of transportation and the airship uh and starting everyone off everyone's on an airship uh headed to storm start a new life or you know everyone's got something they're they're heading for uh and then the airship gets hijacked so we have die hard on an airship
0: oh and, and i like first, that
2: and first of all, as you said who's doing it why who else is on the ship uh, how that story gen, uh, tends to go is they've steered the ship off course. You, you manage to save the airship because, hey, you're player characters. You can pull this off, uh, at which point the ring goes out. And now you're crashing on an airship. <laughs> and so now, how do you survive an airship crash? And carefully, uh, the, very carefully. The, the, the story I've run a couple times essentially has them uh, crash landing in Lemania, which is one of the planes. And so, again, first adventure... Uh, deal with the hijacking second adventure. Now you're in another plane. How do you get back? You have a week before the coterminous period ends. How can you get out? And uh, what I like about that scenario is the, it's something that forces people to work together, that we may be strangers, but going back to Rudy's point, no one else can do this. You know, this is, this is up to us. There will be consequences for failure uh, can you find a way? Whoa, and I have a cat on my computer. Um,
0: can you <laughs> find a way out? That's what cats do. Oh, yeah. Yep.
2: Anyhow, I'm venturing wildly off topic, but as I say, hijacked uh, airship or airship about to crash, uh, along with, of course, Rudy's jumping off an airship. I like all, you know, there's a lot of good things you can do with an airship.
3: Yeah, oh, and great. I know I made Keith really happy when we did the launch day uh mm-hmm basically did a heist on uh on a train and then also they had to pilot the they had to pilot little sky coaches uh little mini versions of the airships through the towers of sharn and one of them hit a bridge and collapsed it down on a bunch Mm -hmm. of people and uh and then they were getting across the way and i always like to insert a lot of mystery or or uh, those kind of overlying uh and and overlapping, because if you're doing a good mystery it does overlap with other things. Uh, operations into my uh, into my games. And I, I would say that the two hooks that I'm I really enjoyed is one we kind of already broached the idea of like moving helping move somebody in and then having to figure out like seeing some interesting item or something that he probably or he or she probably shouldn't have and then going like, Oh, um, who is this why do they have this what's going on or a murder at any point there and then i also did uh for inkwell if you go back and watch that the thing that happens uh initially that kicks that off they're all kind of peripheral to this uh this lounge uh club casino kind of thing
0: the one with the broken john no
3: (laughs) no that's my campaign yeah mine's in sharn yeah uh, so sorry, sorry, in I mixed that Sharn, up.
2: Sharn's got much better plumbing. Uh,
3: it, yeah, it, it, they, there's a lot of infrastructure in Sharn, even in the the little uh, shitty levels below. So the uh, but that idea of they're doing this thing, and then all of a sudden there's a murder, or there's something that happens that starts to unravel a larger mystery uh, across all of the 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 rest of your campaign, or leading into the next uh, the next module or session. Uh, I like the idea that, especially, I use the death of a kinku, and then one of my characters is a coroner in the Lower Duras. So he went and started, like, you know, taking, like, cutting the bird up and and whatnot, and found a uh, a cobalt intestine full of uh, dream lily. So that that had obviously been tied off like sausage links and was being used to smuggle the dream lily and stuff like that.
2: I, uh, you know, had the, the Calistan campaign I've been running, you know, one of the ways it started off is one of the characters, their job was a courier. Uh, and they were, were given a, a bag to deliver to a particular place, which happened to be the, the inn that, uh, you know, most of the other characters hung out or were adjacent to. And it turned out to be a bag of holding filled with skeletons, that essentially they delivered it, you know, uh, and then at some point it unseals and skeletons start coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to deal with that. But then coming back to the whole point is it's who would do this? Why would they do it? You know, what was the point? Is this something being tested? Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't it's kind seem... of
0: like a Eberron IED. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's
2: <laughs> and it's again, the place that it was done is a crappy place with no sort of value at all. So, again, probably not targeting that. So, again, who did it? Why? Why did they pick the player? And, you know, so I I definitely agree with that critical point of, you know, what I liked about that adventure in particular, you know, is, again, you're dealing with uh, both sort of bad part of town that nobody cares about. You know, no one cares what happens. There is no watch that's going to show up to help you here. Uh, But you're also dealing with this concept of, what are some things that essentially terrorists could do, you know, with access to magical items and equipment and magic and things like that? And uh, so, you know, that's always interesting. But again, that that how does this initial thing spur what happens next? How does it create a mystery is always what's interesting to me.
3: Right. And for D&D in a Castle, I actually ran the I ran a campaign where uh, I think. For Carnath, Reckonmark gets the majority of the uh, the attention there, and I wanted to run something kind of out of uh, either Fort Bones or Fort Zombie, yeah. in the sense of like that being uh, essentially the Ellis Island or the Fort Benning kind of uh, place where the players get have to go into there and and deal with their conscription and then uh, figure out what's going on as level zero characters essentially as recruits and then. <laughs> Their, mm-hmm. the way that they progress, how they do while they're there training is what they get to um, is how they get to basically be issued uh, a couple of classes. They, they basically do their, their asVab, uh, they're the, the fort and then they get a couple of choices that they can use. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, after you knock that out and you go through and you get your class and whatnot, you have that officer come in from Reckonmark who thinks he knows everything and you have to, how do you deal with that West Point cadet that doesn't know, you know, really what's going on during the war or is really mad because they were excited to get into the war and do the stuff that they were in and then like ended up not making it out there in time and having to write a desk until they got to go on this special operation. And now they get to show that they know everything.
2: And, and I love yeah. Bones as an example there too, of, of again, that point of taking a place where you're dealing with undead. Uh, but as a point of, yeah, and that's just part of, that's a tool your country uses. You know, this isn't a horrible scary evil thing. That's just a daily fact of life.
0: Well, uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. I've I've long said that I mean PCs adventurers whatever, they always win the fight. Like they're always mm-hmm. going to to save the dragon and slay the princess. <laughs> and it to me the really fun thing as a DM, particularly as a homebrew DM, mm-hmm. is to give the characters a terrible moral choice mm-hmm. and then see what they do. Mm -hmm. And that that seems like an adequate case to do that, an adequate setting to do that in. My campaign, the princess slays the the players.
2: You know, princesses are like that. uh, You know, and I, of course, also made a a role-playing game called Phoenix Dawn Command, uh, where death is how your character grows stronger. uh, And so players definitely don't always win the fight uh, in Phoenix. But yeah. at least they and go out dramatically.
0: Sure, sure. But in, in...
2: gloom, where uh, yeah,
3: death is point. just a random uh, Thursday, you know, night <laughs> yes, game. Yeah, that's like... true.
2: That's true. I like uh, I like gloomy stories. What can I say? I'm right there with you.
1: Oh man. Okay. Well, this uh, has been absolutely delightful, and. I'm so glad that you guys were both able to make it. I don't want to cut you off because this has been entertaining. I'm sure we'll go on forever, but (laughs) we do want to wrap it up eventually. So, um, Rudy, uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you and uh, I guess any projects or whatever you've got ongoing that you want to plug right now and then do the same for Keith.
0: All
3: right, well, I am Rudy, and you can find me on all the socials at Woot. so R-U-T-Y-W-O-O-T. And you can always find me pretty much anywhere a Satine Phoenix is sold, but also on twitch.tv slash MazeArcana or twitch.tv slash D&D, if you'd like to follow along with our campaigns in Everon. Uh, And then I'm also a guild adept. Uh, as well as being uh, Keith's accomplice here for Eberron. So if you go on to the Dungeon Master's Guild, you can find the Wayfinder's Guide, uh, as well as Xanathar's Lost Notes to everything else, and any other plethora of either AL legal or not. Actually, I think pretty much everything I've done so far has been AL legal. Even... Yeah, I
1: was going to say.
3: Yeah. Um, so all of that stuff, and uh, you can definitely find me in anywhere that you are seeing a live event from D&D. We're, we're usually there, Satine and I, uh, helping to make sure that things work as well as they possibly can.
1: Yeah, you tend to get around to the conventions. good place to find you.
3: Oh, yeah, and so many. Mm.
1: <laughs> Keith, what about yourself? Uh,
2: so I'm Keith Baker. I'm uh, Hell Cow Keith is my common social handle. Uh, and I also, uh, you can find me at my website, which is Keith hyphenbaker.com. Uh aside from that, my uh company is Together Studios, and that's t-w-o Gether. Uh, um so you can check my website there. And other than that, I'm on uh Twitter and Instagram and uh and on the event in mean, the DM's guide with the Wayfinder's guide. All
0: right. Well thank you again, gentlemen. Yeah, and I would also
3: say keep an eye out for the uh, next little supplements that Keith and I are going to be putting out, both uh, mm-hmm. the new options that should be uh, available but shortly thereafter for those DMs who are very curious about, what about the creatures and stuff? Mm-hmm. We're going to be working on some things for that,
1: too, so Absolutely. That they
3: have them ready. Uh, if they are very iconic creatures, they will probably be in that book.
1: So much mm-hmm. exciting stuff to come. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Jenny Loveday and Paige.
0: You can find me on Twitter at at Paige Lightman. That's P-A-I-G-E L-E-I-T-M-A-N. Find me on Facebook the same way.
1: You can find our show on Facebook dnd roundtable you can find us on twitter at dnd roundtable you can shoot us an email with your thoughts comments suggestions feedback whatever it is to dndroundtable at gmail.com thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the roundtable with our fantastic guest as always rudy and keith thank you so much again for being here and we will be back uh in two weeks with more exciting guests and more news for you that's it for this episode of the roundtable